0: So, Jesus, help us to hear your personal word to us this morning. Lord, I know you want to say something to each one of us. Ask that you use the words I'm going to speak, the scripture, the thoughts that we're going to think to hear from you. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, hello. Good to see all of you here. My former babysitter is in the front row. Uh, She could tell you stories. Um, It's good to see all of you here. Last week, the uh, Washington Post ran an article comparing CrossFit, a high-intensity workout program, to church. And the article said this, In an age where many are opting out of organized religion, CrossFit does a better job than many religious communities in transforming people's lives. CrossFit involves an identity shift that carries into life well beyond the gym. You become not just a lady who doesn't like her thighs or a guy trying to lose a spare tire, but an athlete. People show up without any evangelism committee trying to come up with ways to get them there. People willingly work hard and pay a whole lot of money for real transformation. Why doesn't that happen in many churches? Well, now that would be a good question, right? And My answer would be because what sometimes happens in churches is we substitute a genuine relationship with the risen Christ that changes us from the inside out for a cultural Christianity designed to keep consumer Christians happy with church programs. Because, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may go to church and go there abundantly. (laughs) Now, don't get me wrong. Church is good. Church is important. We need church to connect to God in worship, to be taught from his word, find Christian community, grow in faith. Church is good, and we need it. But if we're not careful, it can become all about doing church, the rituals, the programs of church, rather than connecting with the risen Christ, who empowers us to live radically different, fanatically joyful, amazingly adventurous, sacrificially loving lives, which is harder but way cooler when you really start living the real Christian life. It's sort of like how my daughter feels about track and running. My dad emails her scripture verses a couple times a week. They get into email conversations. The subject of track came up, and this is what my daughter wrote. She said, that the school I'm going to, there's a track team that I want to go to. The only problem is, and then she made an itemized list. One, I'm not actually that good of a runner, but Daddy says, and here I quote him, it's in my blood. So I decided it was best to point out to him that I also have Mommy's blood in me. (laughs) And well, her running skills are good, cough, cough. Number two, it's like two million-hour practices, and I'd rather not do any sport at all and just lump around on a screen on the couch with lots of junk food, but I don't think my parents would approve of that. Number three, it's better than swimming, barf, barf, But can't power-watching Harry Potter for the 17th time be a sport? I mean, it takes stamina, kind of. (laughs) I just love how she is herself all day long. (laughs) Cultural Christianity is sort of like that. We talk about following Jesus passionately, we think about following Jesus passionately, we sing about following Jesus passionately, but somehow we just don't ever quite get around to it. And instead, do church rather than be church. We're doing a sermon series called Pathfinders about how we can be trailblazers. And this is a trailblazing church. How we can be trailblazers who find hope and power and joy both individually and corporately as Christians in a post-Christian culture. And next week I'm going to kind of set up a framework for this whole series, so hoping that you can be there. But we do live in a post-Christian culture. Fewer and fewer people identify as Christians. Even fewer of them go to church, especially here in the Northwest. Now, as I said last week, that actually has some advantages, right? Because generally speaking, I mean, there's no social pressure getting you here, right? Like, it's all the other way for you not to be here. So if you show up in church, generally speaking, you mean it at some level. I mean, even those of you who don't quite even yet believe in God, you're still here asking questions. I love that. I think this is a good time to be a Christian in America, Because, you know, as I said last week, every problem presents possibilities. And as cultural Christianity recedes, it opens up all kinds of new possibilities for the real deal. Because for too long, we have leaned too much on institutional programs to address spiritual issues and political solutions from both the left and the right for cultural issues. All of which has its place. But as cultural Christianity recedes, recedes, I believe God is doing a new thing in the church to get us back to what it really means to be the church and be the people of God. And one of those things is to connect to Jesus personally, less institutional, more personal. And the story that we just read kind of gives some clues what that might look like. So you've got a highly respected religious leader named Jairus with a girl who's sick and he wants Jesus to help. On their way, Jesus is interrupted by a woman who's had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Probably some kind of menstrual issue which would have meant she would have been unclean and an outcast. And I think this story shows us how we find hope and power in our personal lives, as well as what it means to be a 21st century church that transforms culture from the margins where historically we have always been at our best as Christians. And the bottom line is this. It's personal. And that involves three things. First, an imperfect reach Toward Jesus. In this story, the woman reaches out and touches Jesus' robe and is healed, and Jesus says, who touched my clothes? Then the disciples say, you see the people crowding against you, and yet you can ask, who touched my clothes? In other words, you're in a crowd. Duh. <laughs> right? And what this shows is you can be near Jesus. You can kind of be in a crowd with him. You can talk about Jesus. You can go to church. You can go to Bible studies, but never actually touch Jesus or be touched by his power. But Jesus doesn't want just a transactional religion. He wants relationship, which is why he stops to talk with this woman. And he says to her, your faith has healed you. Now that is a sentence that makes a lot of us, myself included, feel kind of inadequate. Right? Jesus says, if you have faith even as small as a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. So I think, well, then my faith must be microscopic because I can't even tell my kids to clean their room and have it happen. But that's not what this means. That's not what this means. See, this woman's faith, courageous though it is, it's not a perfect faith. She doesn't know a lot about Jesus. She doesn't have any theology around Jesus. When she says, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed, some commentators think that that shows that her faith may have been mixed with some of the magical thinking of her culture, that objects had certain magic powers. So the quality and quantity of faith is not what transforms us. It's who or what our faith is in. You see, the text said she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors, and had spent everything she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Ever have that happen to you? Back then, the standard treatment for bleeding of any kind was to carry around donkey manure in your clothes. Works for me every time, I don't know about you. I, I, I mean, she tried, she's tried it all, and she has decided the world can't help her. That is the beginning of faith. Because, see, we all have some version of the donkey manure. Right? Maybe we turn to career to get significance. That's a big one for me. Or relationships or looks or money to feel secure. By your calendar and your checkbook, by your calendar and your checkbook, what is your faith really in? Your looks, career, money, approval? The first part of faith is saying, I've come to the conclusion that the things I'm relying on for security and significance, eventually they're going to let me down and sometimes they even make things worse. So even though I don't understand everything about Jesus, I don't understand how he works, I don't understand everything about him, I'm still going to reach for him. And this is where it gets personal. See, we don't have faith in a ritual or a religion, but in a person named Jesus. And your faith doesn't even have to be perfect. This woman's faith is not perfect, right? It's more about the clothes than the person of Jesus. You don't have to be perfect in your faith. As long as you are somewhere remotely in the ballpark of reaching out to Jesus. You don't even have to be in the infield. You can be in the bleachers. As long as you are in the ballpark of reaching out to Jesus, Jesus will come your way and close the gap. And speaking of baseball, So last spring I boldly predicted that the Mariners were going to win the World Series. About that. You know, maybe although statistically still possible, still there's keep hope alive. Keep hope alive. An imperfect reach to Jesus is all it takes to begin the healing process. In fact, when Jesus says your faith has healed you, the Greek word for healed actually means saved. Physically, spiritually, emotionally at every level. Saved. When my mentor, Steve, was dying of cancer last year, one of the things he said to me was, he said, you know, in this life, we may or may not get a certain amount of cures, but with Jesus, we are always healed. And I know many people who have been miraculously cured, and I know many more who have not been miraculously cured. But with Jesus, they've all been healed. Like a woman I know of who was not cured of infertility, but God showed her a deeper dream in her heart was actually to help a lot of kids. So she started a nonprofit that helps kids get out of poverty. She feels a deep sense of satisfaction, and now she has hundreds of kids healed, though not cured. And it's not the amount of faith that does it, it's who our faith is in. Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. Imagine there's two people being chased by a bear through a snow-covered forest. And they get to a ledge, and the only way that they're going to be saved is to jump to the frozen pond below. So the first guy jumps, and he says, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to break through the ice and drown, I'm going to die. That would be me. And then he hits six inches of solid ice, and he's saved. Second guy jumps and says, this is going to work. I'm going to be saved. He hits six inches of solid ice, and he's saved. Which one is more saved? The guy who said, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. No faith, right? But he's just as saved. Why? He jumped. It's not the amount of faith that saved the guys. It was the strength of the ice. It's not the quantity or quality of our faith that transforms us. It's the person our faith is in, and his name is Jesus. As the old hymn says, Just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, Fightings and fears within, without, O Lamb of God, I come an imperfect reach where you bring all your doubts and worries and fears and Jesus reaches back to you. The second thing it means to be personalized with Jesus is it means you got to let him meddle in your life. Because of her condition, this woman was considered unclean and anyone who touched her would have been unclean as well, which meant no man would marry her, no one would be her friend. She couldn't even worship God. They would have kicked her out. But Jesus not only heals her body, he heals her soul, and he gives her a new identity, like CrossFit apparently does, only better. I mean, see, this woman is trapped in shame. That's why she comes in secret. She's trying to hide. you ever wanted to just kind of be anonymous? This summer, I spent some time in London talking to various churches who were doing some really interesting things, and I took a side trip to Paris for a few days, and one day I was at a church called Sacre Coeur, which is on the top of a very steep hill. And I was at the top of a long string of stairs that went down the hill, and a lot of people on the stairs, so I stepped to the side onto this little curb and immediately realized it was marble, slick marble. So my, I fell backwards, I had this big backpack on, I fell backwards onto my back, my arms and legs were waving in the air, I slid all the way down the hill on that curb. I mean, I must have looked like a capsized turtle, man, you know? So down at the bottom, was, there's was all these French people, and they were talking very quickly in French, and I got up and said, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I looked up to the top of the hill, and there's this bunch of kids looking down at me, and then they all started sliding down on their back. <laughs> They're like, the crazy American invented a game. It was awesome, right? I was so the center of attention. You know, The last time I was in Paris, I got locked in a bathroom. Okay, I just should not go to Paris, Basically. <laughs> I was the center of a lot of attention. I did not want to be. That's this woman. She feels shame and does not want to be discovered. But Jesus gets real personal, real fast. He meddles. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And that first word is the most important. See, this woman has been called every name in the book except a nice one. And suddenly she hears herself called daughter. And with that one word, Jesus heals. Twelve years of shame. What are the names that got stuck on you? Dumb, ugly, not worth my time, nothing to offer, or just as destructive, successful, achiever, all with the implication, you better keep it up, you better keep it up. you got to let Jesus get deep into your heart and meddle. Hear him say, you're my son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased because he is. You know, we like to keep it religious, Kind of go through the motions, but Jesus, don't get down into my emotions. Don't, you know, let's not touch the emotions, right? Presbyterian, leave me alone, right? Rely, it's safe that way, but Jesus, man, he wants to meddle because that's where you get healed. And he says that there, that place of shame, that thing you do that you don't want anyone else to know about, those labels you got growing up and all the ways you try to compensate there, in that problem, in that shame, in that sin, in that loss, there, let me into there, let me be father there. And from there, I will help you be everything that I think you already are. Christian life is not becoming someone else. It's becoming who God says we already are. And when you experience Jesus at that deep level, you are healed. I remember way back, decades ago, when I had panic attacks. The only place I could feel any peace was connecting to Jesus, usually in worship. The personal heals. Okay, so how do I do that practically, Scott? Well, there's a lot of things, but let's start with the big four of spiritual growth. First is this. Listening prayer, which is not presenting our list of non-negotiable demands, but leaving space for those thoughts that maybe come from God. Doesn't happen a lot, but occasionally. Second, and get personal, by the way. Lord, here's a shame I have. Here's a fear. Here's an ambition. Offer those things and listen. Second, scripture. Stick with the stories, get it on CD, listen to it in the car, only do a little bit at a time, and ask two questions. What does this tell me about me? What does this tell me about God? And let Scripture begin to shape your thoughts. Third, serve in a way that helps you realize the ways that God wants to use your gifts to heal the world. And then four, community that gets beyond news, weather, and sports. The wine and cheese parties, they're just fine. I like them too. But you've got to go a little deeper beyond news, weather, and sports. In the Middle Ages, when someone got interested in following Jesus, I just confessed I drink wine. Oh, well, hopefully that's not a problem for anyone. In the Middle Ages, when someone got interested in following Jesus, they were given what was called a soul friend. Someone who would ask you, how was your day at work today? Or "How, how did it go with your friends? Or how's it going in your marriage? And how can you let God into those places? I think it's interesting that, you know, you go to a gym and you get a personal trainer. You come to church and you get a class. Now, classes can be really good, but I think what we also need in this church is an army of spiritual trainers, right? Like you come here, and you want one, and we just assign you a spiritual trainer who helps you grow. We do have some group discernment, spiritual discernment, but I think we need more. I think we need, because this is not a one-size-fit-all thing, right? That's not, how, that's not how we get really close to Jesus. It's individualized. So we need to get some people here, and we're going to try to work on that to help you do this. In the meantime, you try to look for someone who can do this for you to help you grow. Now, ultimately, it, 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 when I say it's, you know, it's personal, that means it's your personal responsibility to grow. We can't do it for you. Right? That'd be like paying your personal trainer at the gym to work out for you and hope that you lost the weight. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? But no, it doesn't work that way, right? So like, if you're thinking, I don't really feel close to God, I don't really connect with God, I'm not, if you're not doing those big four, start there. It's up to you, but here's where church is helpful. We can help you and encourage you. And in reach, let Jesus meddle. And then last, you got to let Jesus lead you. In this story, Jesus does not do what anyone thinks he should do. That's the problem with letting Jesus lead. He has this irritating habit of doing what we don't think he should do. And he doesn't do this. And Jairus is a powerful, wealthy, politically important male. And Jesus stops his mission to help him for a no-name woman who, who would have been considered unclean. That's why the disciples get so impatient. Right? They basically say, Jesus... Why are you stopping? Let's go, rich, powerful guy, ixnay the woman, rich, powerful guy over here. Right? If we get him on our side, we've got it made. He could promote, you could be senior pastor of First Pharisaical Church, Jerusalem. (laughs) We could change the country if we get politically connected to him. Man, we could, I mean, come on, stop wasting time on this nobody. But to Jesus, nobody is a nobody. The woman is a down-and-outer, Jairus is an up-and-inner, which I know makes him sound like a belly button, but you get the point, right? <laughs> but they aren't so different, right? The text says that Jairus' daughter is 12 years old. This woman had a hemorrhage for 12 years. When this girl was born, this woman started to bleed. It's a six degrees of separation deal. We are more connected than we think we are. Plus, there's a lot of pressure on the up-and-in folk. Keep up with the neighbors, always look good on the outside. And Gyrus' religion, is oppressive. It's a matter of ritual and tradition. And the religious propriety of his day means he shouldn't even be near Jesus. Right? I mean, here's God in the flesh doing miracles, and the religious propriety of his day would keep Jairus away from that. See, what we think is and is not appropriate in church often keeps us from the power of God. But if we let Jesus lead us to places that we don't want to go and ask us to do things we don't think make sense... Then we go from religion to something more personal. In Jairus' case, he falls at Jesus' feet. Propriety gets shoved aside. All the emotions are out there because he has a passion to connect with Jesus, which shows that when we get personal and let Jesus call the shots, we get more than we ask for. See, Jairus just wanted a cure for his daughter's fever. Instead, she was raised from the dead. That's more. Well, how do I know what Jesus is telling me to do? Start with what he says to do in Scripture. Start with what you know. I mean, imagine Jairus' frustration when he finds out his daughter dies while Jesus is talking to this woman who has already been healed. But Jesus basically says, trust me, I got this. I know it looks crazy to you, but I know what I'm doing. See, if we demand that Jesus give us what we ask or imagine, then we're going to be limited to what we can ask or imagine. So if Jesus is saying, wait, maybe it's because he's got something bigger for you. As my friend Mike Houghton says, if my eight-year-old son asked for a chainsaw, I'd say, no, you're not ready for one yet. Let's find another way to trim the dog's toenails. (laughs) But there could come a day when he's older when a chainsaw would be appropriate, like in a zombie apocalypse or living in Yakima, right? (laughs) Which can feel similar, but anyway. Hey, I'm from over there, okay? I know, I'm from the Tri-City, same thing, we're brothers. Okay, East Side Brothers. (laughs) When our faith gets personal, when God says, wait, it's personal, we have to lean on him. When our faith gets personal, when we do what he says to do, when he calls the shots, when we reach toward him, when we let him meddle, we get so much more. And this is where it is good news for 21st century Christians. For too long, our tendency has been to seek institutional programs for spiritual issues and from both the left and the right, political action for cultural issues. And that's important. That's important but laws are a reflection of the human heart and a culture's values. So if you want real change, you have to change the culture's value by changing its heart, and you don't do that by shouting at the culture. You do it by wooing it, one heart at a time. Roman Empire was culturally transformed, not through institutions, not through politics, but as Christians lived radically different, fanatically joyful, amazingly adventurous, sacrificially loving lives, and one-on-one, life-on-life, one-by-one, they won the hearts of the Roman Empire. And at first, what Christians did was repellent to the culture, but one by one, person by person, personalized to personalized, Rome was changed. It's happening now in places like China, Africa, Latin America. In fact, the fastest growing religion by far is Pentecostal Christianity, which lays a heavy emphasis on the personal experience of the presence of Christ. So here's your homework. Let Jesus get personal. Pray. Personally, Jesus, here's an ambition. Here's something I'm ashamed of. Talk to me and then wait for how he responds in your thoughts or through others. Serve in some way that connects you personally to someone else. Mentoring youth or auto angels, Eastside Academy, Jubilee Reach, which helps troubled teens break out of bad cycles. Miracles happen there. All of which makes it more personal. And then today, after the service, you have a chance to sponsor a child somewhere in the world who needs help getting out of poverty. And form a relationship with them by praying for them and writing letters. And we've done this in our family. It's great. It makes it real personal. And I've talked to some of these sponsored kids around the world. For them, it's real personal. And they feel Jesus loving them through their sponsor. pastor named Bill Hybels is famous for saying that he believes the local church is the hope of the world. Church defined as those people who are partnering with Jesus to heal the world. You know who else is starting to say that? The church is the hope of the world? Mayor Richard Daly and Rahm Emanuel of Chicago. Because they've seen what happens when Christians let Jesus get personal with them and personalized with others. By how these churches, there's a group of churches that are kind of coming together to kind of help with prisoners. So they both inside and outside prisoners, churches in Chicago are trying to work with them. Because see, if you get out of prison and you have no community that greets you at the gate, you're going to go back to the community you did the crime in and do it all over again. But if you have an alternate community that shows the love of Jesus, provides help with education, finding a legit job, emotional support, has you into their homes for dinner, Thanksgiving, Christmas, that kind of love changes you. And many of these former prisoners have the street cred to go back to their neighborhoods and talk about a different way to live. Because see, if all your models growing up are pimps and gang leaders, then that's what you're going to aspire to be. One pastor baptized two rival gang leaders while they were in prison, and when they got out, they're now experiencing Jesus in this alternate community. These people are just loving them, these Christians. And these gang leaders, you know, they're smart folks. They know marketing, price points, how to move merchandise, right? (laughs) And so they're using their skills now to go back to the neighborhoods and talk about how Jesus gives you a better high than crack. And just these two former gang leaders alone, that's a lot of crime that's not happening, a lot of new victims that aren't happening. A lot of kids are going to have a dad that wouldn't have had a dad otherwise. Young boys who have only seen pimps and gang leaders now see these former gang members surrounded by folks who love them and admire them and who are rising out of poverty, and now that's who these boys want to be like. See, now you're changing a block, a neighborhood, a city. This is how revival is born, one heart at a time. Only love can change a human heart. Government can't do it. Institutions can't do it. They can help. But it takes love, one-on-one, life-on-life. And it takes sacrifices from Christians, obviously. But think, imagine how real Jesus must feel to these Christians in Chicago as they see not just lives but entire neighborhoods turned around because they got personal with Jesus and with each other. It is a good time to be a Christian in America. Every problem brings possibility, as I said last week. And as cultural Christianity dies, thank you, Jesus, it leaves room for the real thing. And God is stirring a new thing in his church all across this country. And Bell Press, we are leaders of it here in King County. A new thing, a new spirit. As God's kingdom comes, his will gets done, and this earth begins to look a little more like his heaven. This is the way that we are changed. This is the way the world gets changed. It's personal. So Jesus, please be real to us in a personal way and help us give a personalized response to others around us so that you can work through us to heal your world. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.